welcome to The Straw Hat with Rabbi David Wolkenfeld and Rabbinate Goldie Guy. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. So we are recording this the week of Parshat Dvarim, uh, which opens up Sefer Dvarim, the book of Deuteronomy, which occupies a neat place in the Torah. It's the words of Moshe, and all of the Torah is the words of Moshe, but Sefer Dvarim is somehow like more the words of Moshe. It's like <laughs> Moshe's perspective on, on things, like the stories in Sefer Dvarim, when Moshe retells Jewish history, we get to hear it from his perspective. So it's in the Torah, endorsed as the word of God, just like any other part of the Torah, but it is somehow like more so the words of Moshe than than other, or like Moshe's personality comes forth more in Sefirim than in other uh, books of the Torah. Does that sound like a fair assessment? Yeah, it's a it's a retelling, right, a Mishnah Torah of the of the events that have happened, and we get to hear it from a different perspective. Yeah. So, so I guess that having that different perspective is sort of interesting because if it's all the fact that the Torah gives us that, that we're offered that other perspective, I think is... Uh, if you like go up to a Martian and say, like, here's the Torah, here's the first four books of the Torah, what do you think is going to come next? I don't think they would say, oh, well, obviously we're going to get, you know, a retelling of these stories from Moshe's perspective. I don't think, like, uh, Interesting. you know, uh, go to somebody who's never seen the Torah before. We get to for Yoshua, right? That would be next, right? That's when the story continues, right? Yeah. Right? Something like that. Exactly, yeah, you might expect that. I don't know, but... Uh, hmm. Well, why do you think they, we give Moshe space? Well, so one well, idea, that, one idea that, that I've heard uh, is that it, it sort of occupies a middle ground between Torah Bichtav and Shabbat Pets. Mm. There's the, like the written Torah where like, there's like, supposed to, I guess, Moshe's role was really minimal. He was just the, the, the transcriber. And then there's the oral Torah that you know, is sort of parallel and ultimately is, um, you know, we, we encounter through the Gemara and through the Mishnah and, and the Midrashim. Uh, and... Zvarim, Zvarim is, is uh, somehow in between, right? It, it's, in, it's part of the Tarsh Shabbat It's there as part of the five books of Moses, but it also uh, has a little bit more of like Moshe's own perspective, like breaking through. So the episode of the spies, for example, like very famously in Parsha Zvarim, like a very important pivotal event in Jewish history, and um, from you know from Moshe's perspective, you know it's kind of different in the very important <laughs> details as Moshe tells the story from how the story is told in Sefer Midbar, right? So, so that that seems that, that and that's endorsed. Like being exposed to those two perspectives is endorsed by God because they're they're all in the Torah that that you know God presented to us. So I think that's mm. sort of an interesting uh, um, like dynamic about this book, which uh, you know there's a lot to say about it. There's a lot a lot has been said about it, but I sort of that's what I've, in my mind this 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 morning as as sort of looking forward to the launch of Sefer I'm also thinking about this because of this. Uh, article that we were just chatting about that was printed in the New York Times about a scandal uh, amongst um, senior, um, I guess, in the Baptist church right now, that the mm-hmm. newly elected, I don't know, whatever you call him, like, you know, head guy of the <laughs> Baptist convention was accused of plagiarizing a sermon that was delivered like three years ago or something mm. by one of his predecessor, mm. you know, lead um, Baptist guys. And so this has been exposed and now... Like there are calls for him to resign. So I, I just, mm. so I don't know. Like a couple of colleagues and and friends have been debating that article. And like, would there be could there be a similar scandal among among rabbis? Like, what what is the convention of quoting where you got your material from? Mm-hmm. And I think there's like there's an ethical aspect of that of just being 
for you know being just like Tov and just being honest, and then there's like a religious value of the uh, Amro that we sort mm-hmm. of are taught. Maybe Lalalam, right? That I redemption comes, and we yeah we're sort of share, by sharing credit with others. We're bringing redemption, and like that's you know the whole book of Esther, you know, was turned out everything turned out well because uh, you know Mordechai got the credit that he deserved for uh, saving Achashverosh, mm-hmm. uh, and then there's also like a like a convention of the literary genre of the sermon, right? Like it can be, you know, if you're writing a paper for publication, you put a lot of footnotes there or endnotes, right. And, right? You can just, all the information, here's the idea, where's where I got it from, and here's how I changed it, and here's what he meant, and yeah. here's what she said, and you can I'll throw it all in a footnote, and then people right. can, like, recreate all of the intellectual process you went through to discover what you discovered. Yeah. And they can just also read your words without that, you know, kind of getting in the way. In a sermon, you can't. It's very hard to do footnotes in a sermon. Yeah, incorporating it into your style so it doesn't kind of mess with the flow of what you're saying is is, is uh, something you have to think about as you're composing your sermon. Uh, I know that I do it not infrequently because I, I tend to read uh, what my friends are thinking about. I learn with friends before I, or, or, or with colleagues before I, uh, um, write my drasha. And I, I like to say, you know, I was learning, this is this is the context in which this idea arose, or here's what inspired this idea. Um, I, I know we talked about this a little bit when I was talking about the process of how I write my, my drashot or my divrei Torah. Um, I don't know, I like, I like kind of revealing the seams. And it's not like, a, it doesn't end up being so clumsy for me, because I just, you know, you throw in a name. I, I was learning with, and I wrote this one. I think it adds a personal touch as well. But maybe when you're more established, and right, you're expected to come up with like these, uh, you know, lightning bolts of inspiration, then it's, so I, it doesn't I, yeah, sound as nice. I think, I think maybe, yeah, I think the education, I, I, I perceive, having listened to you speak, I perceive the value of your, your bringing your audience into this this world of like, these are, my friends and colleagues who are thinking about Torah in this way, and these are the ideas that, you know, so it's... Or these are the conversations I'm having. Oh. This is the world from which this grew, yeah. and I want to invite you into the conversation as well, right? I'm, I'm, I think about Torah. I'd like you to think about it with me, right? And that's also how I teach my shiurim. I often will, will say, you know, I, I want to hear your ideas. At, like, if you think of anything or if you're reading anything in the course of the week, please send it to me. And I, I mean it seriously, like to involve the audience in, in the process. Yeah, I think you do that very effectively. I think there is, um, um, so I think the reluctance of what, why, so the question to interrogate is why, right. why isn't that more common? And I, I feel for myself, I sometimes feel just like, you know, if somebody asks me, where's this from? Where'd you learn this? Where's this from? I, I need to be able to back up everything I say with like, right, here's the Rashi, too. here's the Gemara, here, here's the essay I read by so-and-so, or here's what you know, my friend said, and here's why I interpret it, and here's why I change it, and here's what I agree or disagree with. Like that, that's necessary, but mm-hmm. um, like the flow of, like, of, of a discourse, I think, right. can sometimes be like, encumbered by yeah. um, too many you know, name, names that people don't know, right? <laughs> it's, uh, so I, it's I learned that also early on. Like when you're, when you're citing a primary source, you don't need to say, I heard it in so-and-so's class, which I used to do when I was uh, younger and right. writing and saying, well, I didn't, you know, I'm not as learned as this rabbi who I learned this from. And they did all the research and I'm just kind of, yeah. you know, taking from that. And I learned that you don't actually have to do that. You don't have to go as far as that. But a connection or an idea or a source that, a source that I wouldn't have come upon, you know, uh, Going through my Mikrokadolot or reading on Sfaria, then I then I like to cite. So the the joke is that uh, you know the joke about this is like a lot of rather jokes about um, copying sermons. One that I heard um, oh originally from Rabbi <laughs> Drach was that it was a uh, maybe I don't know if it was that somebody was uh, a um, a rabbi was on vacation 
and he went to he went to shul in the city where he was on vacation, and he heard a really wonderful drasha, and he went up to the rabbi and said, you know, that was such an amazing drasha. I'm so glad I got to listen. I feel so bad that I didn't get to deliver that drasha myself. Like the idea was so so good, and the rabbi said, don't worry, you will. You'll you'll get to. It. You'll get to it. <laughs> Um, That's also true. The other, the other um, <laughs> joke about this is the uh, the the, the line. You know, which I don't remember the I, I don't remember the joke. The punchline is a gazlan is kind of vishinui. Okay, yeah. that like if you steal something, this is it, this is true in halakha more broadly, <laughs> right? If you steal something halakhically and then you change it, so like you I don't know, you steal a uh, a piece of wood and then you make it into a table, right? You you actually you then acquire ownership over that. Right. It's not it's that. not approval, but it's just ha- the process by which it happens. And you have to pay restitution. You have <laughs> yes. to pay restitution of the value of what you stole, but the actual um, piece of wood then belongs to the theft, the thief, right? So it's a guy's a thief is Kone Bishinui, right? When when he changes or she changes what they stole, like then it becomes it belongs to them. So so if you you know you copy someone else's dress, surely you'll change it in some way. You'll you'll do some shinui and then it's yours, right? So okay. so that's a joke. But I think there's some way in which you uh, there must be some amount, right? Of but that's exactly right. Internalizing and this is why this is why I was yes. thinking about sacred verbiage. There's some yes. degree of like internalizing and processing and then reworking in your own language, in your own idiom, in a way that's relevant for your audience yes. and your relationship with that with them and what you and they have been through together and mm-hmm. what they're facing, right? So even if the, like, the chiddish, the core idea, the insight, the kernel, uh, might have come from, you know, like a Drusha kernel website or from <laughs> something that your friend published, you know. In, in there a, are Drusha a, kernel a, websites? Yeah, I'll tell you afterwards. Oh, boy. Not, not, not in recording, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, so that, that's, you know, I think that there's some, at some point, there's, there's, a, there's a, I think it's a, gray, it's a gray scale where there's one level there's like, it's just wrong not to attribute and there's another level where, You've done enough research. You've thought about this enough that like this is that it's you're, you're your entitled idea. to to yeah. share the idea. I think there definitely is a gray area where different <clears throat> people's comfort level and different people's piety or whatever or integrity will maybe lead them one way or the other, or what the audience is, is going to be, you know, like uh, find effective versus like names they, that are out of context for them. Right. You know, if I heard this from Rabbi Liebtag, so right. is my audience know Rabbi Liebtag, so you know maybe now they do. If I've like mentioned <laughs> his name five times, and maybe that's a reason to mention his name five times. But if they, you know, but if they don't, then then maybe it's not. It's extraneous and extraneous detail. It doesn't. Uh, uh, promoting. So, so, so that seems to me like a great scale. And this is also is why I'm thinking about like Sefer Dvarim. Like this is <laughs> like what is the, you know, there's like there's this revelation from Kaddish Baruch Hu that like Moshe was the conduit for. And then, but also there's, you know, his take on events and there, which we, which, which we then endorsed by God. Too. And then that becomes Sefer Dvarim, right? So that, right. That, that to me is, speaks to a, s- some way in which ideas can be like come into a person and then are... <laughs> transformed by being inside a person and then when they leave that person they're, they're a little bit different yeah it's, I mean it also has me thinking now about the relationship between Torah the written Torah and the oral Torah the Torah Shabbat Peh right how much is the Torah Shabbat Peh it, it's, it's a reworking of the laws in the Torah in some way right and saying well how much are they different from each other the two the two Torah and how much are they kind of intertwined mm-hmm. such that once you have the the halacha as the product of both of them they're actually kind of you know one and the same so it's Right, the yeah, Torah, yeah. reading the Torah with the Torah Shabbat pen next to it kind of, is like your inter- our internalizing, reworking, and then the kind of producing what the tradition yeah, is yeah, going yeah. forward. There's, there's, like the Torah, there's the Torah that preceded creation, that you know the blueprint for the universe that God looked at when mm-hmm. God created the universe. The Torah of black fire and white fire, and then there's a the Torah that comes into the world and is given to Moshe, and then and then and then the oral Torah that's you know given at Sinai and then gets you know expanded and developed and mm-hmm. studied and right and that you can't um, right. and the continuing unfolding, which is what we're talking about, which is to say, right, I met this text or I talked to this person, and then the Torah changed inside me, and I was able to deliver it in a different way. 
And that's why, I mean, I'm still careful to say, and this came from, or and I heard from, and this got me thinking, but it's changed, right? It's changed and it's something new. It's something different, even if it's, uh, you know, has been said in a different way before, right? This circumstances, this interaction, the people present here in this context, give it give it a new life. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's not just citation. That's also... That's also education because that's yes. that's telling the, your audience, you know, these are contemporary colleagues of mine who are thinking of like creatively about the Torah, or these are you know if, I don't know, or or you just quote you know, you quote the Civil a lot, right? Like that, <laughs> then they, then they learn that he's an important person who adds like you know, hundred years ago had really important things to say about about the Torah, True. right? And, and that's also I think an edu- so the citation then has an educational value. I think I quote Rav Bazak a lot. Many, many ideas are from him. Like, that's great. People should know that, like, he is alive and, and writing and teaching. And I quoted Rav Maidan uh, a, a few weeks ago, and someone said, well, as soon as you said Rav Maidan, I was hooked. And I was like, oh, okay, interesting. It also gives me gravitas, right? Yes. That's, a, that's a, little trick, a little trick I use. Yeah, yeah. He's got gravitas. Yes. Yeah. So this past Shabbat, I started a uh, Shabbat afternoon series on... Gesher HaChayim, which is a book that was familiar to me and that I, book that I learned from and owned for many years, <laughs> but had never read the introduction. And a colleague, um, Rabbi Joe Wilson, <laughs> had said, oh, it's really, really worthwhile reading the introduction. I said, okay. And then he said, and I actually taught the introduction really, and it was like really, really impactful. And here is a translation that I made of the introduction. <laughs> I was like, excellent. Now, now, now we're talking. Uh, so we, using his translation, we studied Shabbat afternoon from the introduction to to Gesher Chaim, and it's so, so interesting. So Gesher Chaim is a um, compendium, a, a book, a single-subject halakhic book on the laws of mourning. Uh, it actually covers more than just laws of mourning. It's like the full Gesher HaChaim, the, like the bridge of life, the bridge, I guess, out of life or between one kind of life to, to another kind of life. So it includes the mitzvot of visiting the sick and preparing for death and the dying process and then the laws of, you know, uh, tahara and burial and mourning. Uh, and so I... I don't know, I encountered it in Shiva, learning Hilchot Avelut, um, but the introduction uh, is where the author explains in, the, in Rabbi Tukachinsky writing in Jerusalem in 1947 why he felt that after the World Wars it was the time to write a book on Avelut, and he uh, says that precisely because there was so much death in the context of this devaluing of human life, in the context of you know, a century, two centuries of scientific discovery and industrialization and technological growth was then harnessed to kill people more effectively and mm-hmm. uh, you know put all of human life in existential <laughs> threat of nuclear annihilation and in that context now actually we've been you know, learning how to do things and you know accumulating power without investing in the wisdom to use that power well and and wisely mm-hmm. and uh, he felt that a book that focuses on the fact that every human being is mortal and that the human life is sacred and that the passage from one life to another is this sacred process that needs to be honored and cherished and um, imbued with sanctity through all sorts of mitzvot and minhagim, uh, that's a way to imbue um, human life with more meaning and then maybe counteract some of those negative uh, products of modernity. So I'm enjoying it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I'm learning a lot. I would encourage, you know, if you those who missed the first class could come to the second class and the third class in future weeks. Uh, it was a bit of a controversy in the class. Some people felt that I, that he or I were, was too uh, negative on... Scientific tech- revolution. <laughs> yeah, technology. Like, well, you know, yeah, we have... 
Well, there was a, there were there was a science teacher in the room, right? Who was arguing I, I, that I, I, I didn't, I'd forgotten that when I uh, yeah. Who was arguing <laughs> that it's not the ad, the advances of science that are inherently that are have inevitably led to uh, science being you know an instrument of death, <laughs> right? It's just people or the evil inclination in people. Yeah, there was there was another uh, participant in the class yes, who, who said, said that, that, that actually science had had. In, in aggregate, you know, yes, improved life, improved more lives, and brought people out of poverty, and et cetera, et cetera. Which is, Tarkian, we need like all this research to be pulled out during the class. I don't. Yeah, I mean, it's great. It looks great that everyone has their perspective <laughs> and shares and argues. That's great. But I, I don't think that really uh, undermines what Rev. Tikhachinsky was saying. It can be true that um, technology has helped humanity. It's also true that every human being now lives under the threat of nuclear annihilation. That wasn't true, right? So that's so we have air conditioners and food, and like fewer of us are starving, but all of us uh, have the threat of nuclear annihilation, which was true for none of us um, 100 years ago. And right. you know, all of us are facing existential threats of climate change, yeah. to, which could undermine all the progress of the last 100 years right. of technological civilization. So I, I don't know. It could be they, they could both be true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think I don't think Tikhachichi was saying we should you know we were better off uh, without electricity and running water. I think <laughs> he was saying we've devoted so much energy towards accumulating technology. That, right, that we've kind of ignored uh, end of life and death. Right? We've been, we've devoted a lot of energy towards improving life and not uh, and the meaning of life. The meaning the, of life. Yeah. No, we've ignored the meaning of life. Yes, right, that's what he's yes, saying. We've yes. been, we've improved how to live. Right, we've uh, kind of affect like. Uh, efficiency, right? We've, we've um, given primacy to efficiency as opposed to thinking about the purpose of life, and then that ends up to devaluing the end of life, um, because what is there more to produce at the end of life? And mm -hmm. there's um, there's what to be said. I think I think that's a that's a separate argument that's strong on its own, right? Of just we don't like thinking about death, and uh, and it's actually really important, and it's something we're all going to face, and quality of care at end of life, or, and, and preparing ourselves. As for our own ends of our lives is, is really important. Mm -hmm. And devoting time to it is it does make your life more worthwhile and will add to meaning. Okay. So it just made, I was thinking throughout the class about, uh, you know, my friends who work as chaplains and they encounter mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. every single day or anyone who has worked uh, in a hospital. Yes. And I was like, well, huh, I guess people who haven't worked in hospitals and I'm even removed from that a few years, you know, more than a few years and thinking about how that's, you know, it really did impact the way I lived my life every single day, having to, you know, I might encounter death this day, and people in this building, you know, in this hospital building are encountering death today, and you Can can't, you can't ignore it. That's how you were a chaplain. It just, to... I don't know, it, it kind of like slows things down in my day-to-day. -day. It felt like the work, it's, I mean, I would go from the Bait Me Josh to to my day of chaplaincy work, which was the, I, I would, my, the way my day was split up, it happened to me when I was doing my graduate program at Stern. I worked, you know, we learned from Monday to Thursday and Friday we were off. And on Fridays I would go into the hospital um, and work with a chaplain as a cha as like a, a volunteer, but an intern, something in between CPE and, and, uh, and volunteering. And CPE is cli like a, CPE, clinical pastoral <laughs> education. Clinical pastoral education. It's the, it's the training. It's the it's the clinical training that that uh, chaplains go through uh, in order to either grow themselves, learn how to work better with patients or people in general, um, or become uh, certified chaplains. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that is a, a part of the curriculum at Shivat Maharad. It's something that's. Um, it was an internship that was available to me through my program at Yeshiva University. Um, Were there other GPAT students? After me, I was the first. 
um, the rabbi came to speak with us and I said, I need to work with you. And he said, great, I'm going to figure out <laughs> how to do an internship. He, we, and he created the internship. Uh, and then there were a few more who came. Who, Who's the rabbi? Rabbi Daniel Coleman. He's a board certified chaplain uh, in New York. Sorry, so, so, so you go to David Josh on Friday, you go to the hospital and? No, I go to the hospital and I get my, I mean, at first I, I uh, kind of uh, shadowed uh, Rabbi Coleman and his work and learned some techniques. We would reflect because there wasn't, you know, I was officially brought on as a volunteer. So I had all mm-hmm. that onboarding about policy and training, about, but only as a, in a volunteer capacity. And they have Beaker Cholem volunteers at that hospital, um, um, people who were a team who would, you know, a Jewish team that would come in and visit people and deliver Shabbat boxes, which were these, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with electric candles and with little besamim and other and, and small small things that might uh, brighten the day or make a make a hospital stay over Shabbat feel more Shabbistic. Mm-hmm. So this was kind of uh, amped up in that it was, I was also serving in a pastoral capacity, you know, sitting with the patients. Um, they knew I was coming to sit with them and listen mm-hmm. and hold them in that, in that moment. Um which uh, it just cha- it changes you. It changes you when you when you sit with people who are in these liminal moments in their lives where they you know mm-hmm. everything is thrown asunder and mm-hmm. the first thing you learn is right you 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 give you know you give the patient autonomy. Mm-hmm. You give the person who's there. You say you know you let them know that they're in control of the mm-hmm. space. You ask permission at every juncture, so that gives them a little bit of a, oh yeah. Right, like I'm, mm-hmm. I can be respected in this encounter, and you give them space, and you sit, you just sit and and listen and hold room for what they're going through, and it, it does it changes the rest of the way you wor- walk in the world when you exit the hospital because it's just right. You learn. I mean, it, you carry that awareness with you of mm-hmm. the difference between me and this person is not is not much at all, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, something could change in a moment, and I can be in this bed and yep. and. and all of the things that are that are worrying them are things that I just kind of push away in my daily awareness, and right. I have them too. And and yeah, it changes the way you think about things. Or you know, it taught me to hold space for my friends in different ways. And even though sometimes they you know call me out on it and say like, "Don't chaplain me," okay. So but that's, that's fine. I don't need that. I need a friend, not a chaplain. Okay. So you learn about about roles and and how to wear different hats at different times. Uh-huh. But it definitely. Yeah, and even just uh, holding it helped me hold space to listen to others and to listen to myself and to have different priorities and, and also to think about it forced me to think about end of life and and that we're all going to to face that. Um, I think that's what Rachel Kitsch was writing about in that piece we saw. Right, so it's just uh, right, and yeah. it does change you. My, my yeah. friends who I speak with who are chaplains who work in the hospital every day, it's just it's a different conversation because they're witnessing this every single day, holding people through this every single day, you can't ignore it. And when you can't ignore it, you hold your life in different, in a different way. Right? You're, I mean, it's not, it doesn't magically transform you. We're still human, right? But there's still moments where you forget the larger picture of things and can get caught up in petty things. But definitely that work in a hospital uh, changed the way I walked in the world mm. and taught me. I mean, it's something that inspired me to become a rabbi and, and you know, to shift my priorities and say, well, this pastoral work is really part of what Torah is all about, about elevating the daily experience and reframing so that we have, so we live our life with greater awareness and purpose and so that we, you know, aren't surprised at the end when it's like, oh, Mm. this was just life. I began it and it wasn't going to be forever. And how do I make each moment holy or or, or valuable and integrating those things? My Torah learning and in in pastoral work uh, came from that experience. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. So before we end this week, tell us about this summer learning you are organizing for children. Um, 
So the idea is that we should, I know everyone is busy with their summer plans, vacation, fun, camp, and everything uh, that comes with the change of schedule in summer. I wanted to make an opportunity for families, for kids to um, make time for Torah learning during their summer, uh, for engaging with the shul and coming into our Beit Midrash during the summer. Um, so it's it's a it's a uh, made to order Torah learning for uh, for kids. Uh, any topic that uh, that they might want to explore, I, you know, obviously the the weekly parsha is a great opportunity to explore different things that come up uh, and do some nice Torah learning in a group together to feel connected to Anche Shalom uh, to learn about uh, to work Torah into your summer vacation. So so far we have a few signed up. We're looking for a little more traction. Uh, so. Um, once we hit that threshold, we'll be up and going. Even so, I'm probably going to start it in August and just uh, meet throughout August for whatever weeks people are available. So what so ages? We'll have, sorry, what um, ages? How does it work? What? 7 to 12, something like that. But um, I, I actually, it's open to younger the kids. who have signed, We have some younger kids signed up right now. So Kids Talk Torah is still ongoing. So that's also an opportunity for kids of any age to learn with myself or Rabbi Walkenfeld. Uh, and it's been really wonderful. This was a this summer learning is for kids in a group to get together in a group and have that chavruta dynamic again of like learning from uh, from interactions, right? The Torah that's born in the space in between people and and in, and in specific spaces uh, is a beautiful thing. And that's what I'm thinking of producing, right? Through this group, that's the goal of like creating Torah as a group, uh, learning from each other. So that's the opportunity. Summer learning. Sign up. Uh, it's, the link is in the family's email. And we'll start that for sure, for sure, in August, regardless of how many kids sign up. So Fantastic. Great. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Straw Hat. This is Straw Hat producer Haley Leventhal, and I'm excited to let you know that this is actually the 50th episode of the podcast. We really appreciate you all listening and subscribing, and as always, we hope you'll let us know if you have feedback or there are topics you want to hear about in future episodes. We have a brief summer hiatus coming up, but we will be back with a new episode in just a few weeks. And until then, I hope you're all having a wonderful and safe summer.